What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In season two, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now your host, award-winning architect turned entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is my friend, the wonderful architect and activist Pascal Sablon. Pascal is an associate at Adjay Associates, a design firm based in New York. She previously worked at S9 Architecture and FXVAL and began her career at Aris Design. She is the president-elect of the National Organization of Minority Architects and a member of the prestigious College of Fellows of the American Institute of Architects. I want to highlight one of the many awards that she has won. She is the prestigious 2021 Whitney Young Prize winner, and that's awarded by the AIA to just one architect every year whose work embodies social responsibility and actively addresses a relevant issue, such as affordable housing, inclusiveness, or universal access to buildings. Pascal is the founder of Beyond the Built Environment, which is her platform for advocacy on behalf of diversity and equity in the architecture field and the broader real estate industry as a whole. She's a graduate of Columbia University, like me, and the Pratt Institute. We'll be talking about the Cleveland Foundation headquarters. We will also be using that project to talk more broadly about design justice, a very timely topic at the intersection of good design and social justice. Thank you so much for being here with us, Pascal. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you to the audience for tuning in. I'm excited to share my journey, my story, and a little bit about the projects that I've been working on. Absolutely. Let's do it. So you started your design education at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. Tell us about that experience and what stands out to you about it. Yeah, so I actually was a young student or child who always knew she wanted to be an architect. I was an artist and I was commissioned to do a mural at the Pamanak Communications Center in Queens. And as I was drawing, Pastor Bayer walked by and said, wow, you can draw straight lines without a ruler. That's a great skill for an architect to have. Mm -hmm. And once that seed was planted, there was no uh, uprooting it, if you will. <laughs> and so I was really excited to attend Pratt Institute for my bachelor's degree in architecture, uh, where I was able to start studying and start working on my design from the very beginning. And that was a really great process and, and experience. And I loved my work at Pratt. 
One important experience that I typically talk about, because I think it's important that we tell our stories, is within the first week or two of school, I was in an architecture history class and a professor asked me and another student to stand in a classroom of about 60 or so students. Mm -hmm. So we stood and he said, "Okay, these two will never become architects because they're black and because they're women. And a few things hit me. One, that a professor would say it makes such a strong proclamation without even knowing my name or my capacity. Two, that my peers would be so quiet and even accepting of this kind of prediction. Mm -hmm. And then three, that in a classroom of 60 plus students, there was only two of us that were black women. Right. And so that really started to kind of give a sense of my purpose. I knew in that moment Mm -hmm. that I would never just walk into a space and be representing Pascal, but I'd be representing my gender and my race. And so Mm -hmm. therefore it was really important that I always show up and show out. I'll Mm -hmm. always do 110% because I didn't want my performance to limit opportunities. I wanted my performance to be catalytic for more opportunities for others moving forward. And so I always say that I was privileged in that moment with purpose Mm -hmm. and use that to navigate and know that I would be working as an architect and projects, but also as an activist that would be changing the profession as well. Wow. That is is absolutely ridiculous on the part of whoever that person was. But I think that shows a lot in terms of your character that that didn't dissuade you from the goal that you had. And that just served as one little speed bump along your your pathway towards uh, success. I think for me, when I was an undergraduate in architecture, there was a similar instance where there was very few people that looked like me uh, around in any of the classes that I had. One thing in particular that stood out is the foundation architecture history class that this entire textbook, that's probably this, and I could probably have like done like bicep curls. Also, I have no biceps, so it would have been worth it because it wasn't that much weight. It would have been positive anyway, is the fact that in this entire book, the history of architecture from South Asia, which has been home to civilizations for thousands of years, as in addition, Africa, Eastern Asia, was afforded about this much space in a book that was this big. And the vast sweep of it was all Western Eurocentric architecture. And when I asked my professor and I explained to him is that I said, I've been to India and Pakistan. There's amazing architecture that's there that can be an influence to many students of architecture. Why is there only like two to three pages in this whole book about it? And why is it under the category of ethnic architecture as opposed to it on its own? And (laughs) the professor, and just let's be frank, call it what it is, an old white male said, because we're focusing on the architecture that matters for an architecture education. There you go. I mean, to be uh, honest, when I share my story, I typically ask audiences to stand if they've ever been told that they weren't good enough because of their gender and race. And people are standing. People are standing in professional settings. Mm -hmm. People are standing in schools of architecture. So this kind of mission or this kind of this statement that we are not worthy or we do not have the capacity is part of the injustice ecology and economy that we're trying to dismantle, right? And Mm -hmm. exactly what you just said is the reason why I'm working really hard to publish a book that's really gathered the best of the best of the products that Mm -hmm. are in my Say It Loud and Great Diverse Designers Library as a way of kind of creating that kind of component as well. Um, And so I'm trying to create the resource that is the testimony that we are doing great work and that we've impacted the world globally as well. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. So then on that note, do you see your work 
as an architect and an activist as separate and distinct from each other? Or are these ideas and these inspirations intertwined for you? And I think that's the gift David, Sir David Ajay has given me. Mm -hmm. Up until joining his team, I was kind of told that it had to stay separate, right? That it couldn't be one and the same, that you do your architecture from nine to five Mm -hmm. and you do your advocacy from five to nine, right? And Mm -hmm. so that became my timeline and my ability to work. And if I was switching into spaces, I'd have to recall which hat I was wearing. Whereas when I started talking to David, it was like, no, you're both. We are all both, right? We're all, architecture is political. There's no staying Mm -hmm. neutral, right? And so in that, when you come into this office and when you talk about our projects or when you work collaborating with our team, I need you to bring both of those parts of your identity forward and all the other parts of your identity. You as Mm -hmm. a black person, you as a mother, you as a woman in architecture, Mm -hmm. all of that is needed and necessary to engage and inform and educate whoever we're talking to and what we're trying to move the mission forward through design, through architecture, through practice, through mentorship. Mm -hmm. And so this has been a revolutionary thought for me, honestly, to be quite frank. And that's why I talk about it because I want to show other firm leadership and other advocate architects out there that you do not need to subdivide and and, or you do not need to choose. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think it's important that we're able to hold as much of our identities and be authentic in those spaces as much as possible and that it be seen as a benefit than than something that's a detriment to our focus on our our impact in the profession. So right now in this moment, I can say it's absolutely intertwined. And that's part of the reason I selected the project that we're going to talk about today is because Mm -hmm. I feel like it was very evident, not just us as the architecture design team, but also the advocate that was part of our client team and like how they too were advocates in this whole process. That's incredible because I think that that is also so reflective of a sea change that's happening in our industry in terms of the way that practitioners think. Uh, So I think that this reality you described where then over here is everything else is one that doesn't jive well for many other millennial architects like me, my friends that are in that age category of the 30s, and particularly, say, for example, for Redis. So it's a a real estate company not focused in design. It's a technology company. It's a startup. The engineers and the product managers that I hire, oftentimes they want to truly understand what is the meaning, what is the mission of this organization, and not just the minutiae of is there free kombucha in the the building uh, lobby and do I get free lunch on Fridays? Like, which were some of like, the more basic questions say that I perhaps asked. So, because I was too shy of asking right to the point of a company. So I think that's uh, something that's really awesome that you described that David Ajay's firm uh, represents. And I think that that is uh, reflective of the new, the cutting edge, the pioneering, the, the leading firms in our industry and what they're doing. So in the context of this relatively short career that you've had so far, this wonderful career, you have honestly accomplished a lot, a lot more than most people. And it's really crazy inspiring. So I imagine that when you ask people for things, you get yeses all the time because you're recognized and people know who you are. Is that the reality or is there some other truth behind it? Absolutely not. That is false at all (laughs) Actually, part of the reason why I reach and apply to all these awards and different recognitions was to gain the credibility that, Mm -hmm. you know, when I ask for an exhibition or I ask for certain things, the answer nine out of 10 is actually a no. Right. And so 
the the reason to even apply for the Whitney M. Young was to give credibility to the work because at the mm. time my firm didn't, didn't do advocacy work and felt like the advocacy work that I was doing was actually taking away from my position. And so I was actually leveraging these awards as a way to get more yeses. And what I've been noticing is that it's also kind of allowed my reach to go global. And I'm, you know, I'm an architect and based in New York. My network it was the strongest in New York. And now it's much more national and international because of it. And I am truly humbled and inspired by that because I didn't even see that. I was trying to dismantle a no. And in actuality, I gained all these different yeses in the process. But there's a series of no's that I get. Right. And if I specifically hone in on say it loud, you know, mm-hmm. trying to get organizations to want to do an exhibition, trying to get a space to donate the space for us to have this exhibition, trying to get sponsors to pay for it. And the hardest part, trying to get women and BIPOC designers to submit for it. That is absolutely the hardest part of this whole process is really? getting women and people of color to recognize that they are worthy of elevation. Oh, this product's not good enough. Oh, I wasn't the sign, the person who signed and steals it. Oh, it was from 10 years ago. All of it matters, right? This is the architecture that matters that we should all be learning from and kind of gleaning to. And I would say my most challenged initiative is Say It With Me Media. Mm -hmm. And what I was saying is that I'm creating this resource of hundreds of women in BIPOC designers in my Great Diverse Designers Library, which is basically the repository of anyone who ever is featured in my exhibitions. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to not just live on my website, but I wanted to actually be a resource for potential clients, for professors, for students, mm-hmm. for media publications, for you know potential clients and developers. And that was kind of the catalyst there. And so with say with media, I'm asking media publications to document, track, and publish how many women in BIPOC designers are featured in their content. To mm-hmm. increase that by 5% annually until a minimum of 15% is reached. To call us great and why I want that language is because we often are told about these great architects and, you uh-huh. know, they're the best dot com. And when you look, it's not us. Right. So I'm encouraging to use the same vernacular that they use to describe our white male counterparts to mm-hmm. use to describe women and BIPOC designers. And lastly, I've realized that a lot of my historical information about women and BIPOC designers are actually coming through social media imagery in posts, right? Mm -hmm. And not actually through textbooks and work. And I'm saying you you media publications have the resources to do historical content and vetting. It would be great if you can unearth that content and move it forward as well. And so those are the four main kind of asks of media publications. I have legit reached out, had conversations, Zoom meetings, emails with most of the design professional publications globally. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people say, we love the idea, we love the concept, but we're not ready to commit. And so that has been really powerful to me to see that as being such a big no. Mm -hmm. They're definitely using the webpage. I get requests all the time to connect with designers here and there, like all the time. So Mm -hmm. I'm happy that it's being leveraged, but that commitment that it's not just, oh, we're gonna do better, but an accountability measure, It's something that I would love to push. So the way I've kind of restructured the website under that initiative is actually now it's a thumbnail for every major publication and their monthly kind of views. Mm -hmm. And you can click it and an auto-filled email will come up and you can say, hey, I also want you to sign to this pledge. And that's also like a call to action that I ask for my community and my network to do as well, where it's not just me asking, but us as a community saying, we demand to see us featured and not just in February for Black History Month and not just in March for Women's Month and mm-hmm. not just in October, like 
365 days of the year, there's definitely content and amazing work that we could absolutely be featured in. And I think there's so many awesome things I just want to say in, in response to the awesome things that you said. One is just for anyone that may not be familiar, Pascal used the term uh, BIPOC, which stands for Black, Indigenous, People of Color, it's Indigenous and Native Americans, uh, People of Color, uh, those are, are anyone that would be in addition to Black and Indigenous people. Um, so for example, like myself. And I want all of our listeners that are architects to know this, is that the amazing awards of the AIA, just Google them. AIA, awards and honors, nominate yourself. Have somebody nominate you. That's how this process works. It doesn't sound like these decisions come down from heaven. They're actually people that submit nominations for themselves or for others. So do it. I looked at the list uh, yesterday when I was preparing for this conversation, and I found whether I'm going to apply for that one. So I think that there's definitely the idea of raising your own hand and not waiting for someone to call on you is important. Absolutely, because it, there's also this counter narrative about not being too boastful, about, mm-hmm. you know, not, not being genuine if you do that. And, you know, a lot of these architecture firms that are winning these awards is because they have a marketing team who has an academic calendar that's set to it's know ancient. when. Right. And they're producing and they're putting themselves out there. And it's also where you should be submitting for grants, awards, mm-hmm. fellowships. You should be submitting for publications when you finish a project. You should send it to those publications and said, hey, I finished a project. Here's the photography. Here's a summary, a press release about what my project's about. You mm-hmm. should leverage it. Let me know if you have any questions, right? You need to put yourself out there. And if you are too shy and you do not want to do it, then you have people like me who are building mm-hmm. these resources that is specifically about engaging and elevating you, your work, and your identity for those purposes and trying to be as loud as possible in terms mm-hmm. of getting that information out there. So yes, I 1,000% agree submit, apply, get out there. And even if you don't get it, even if you don't win, you are Mm -hmm. still being reviewed by a jury of really impressive people who now become more aware and more familiar about you and the work that you're doing. I think that each of these things that we've talked about are so important about making sure that your voice is loud and your voice is maybe even louder than you're even comfortable being. The reason often is, is for example, at least for myself, I think this stereotype is that Asian males are kind of more quiet and they don't talk very loud. I've actually on purpose made myself talk louder. I just talk loud because I want to. I just keep talking. I don't care. Uh, And I think in similar ways, my sister is a woman and uh, she's a woman of color that they're often told in very subtle ways, you're too loud. You're speaking too loud. And then she's the same way. She's like, no, I'm just gonna keep talking. I don't care. So I think that, that all these things that Pascal will talk about are, are absolutely great. One, if you could uh, describe a little bit more is how you came to understand that the adjective great or the, the adjective excellent or important, why that's important in a social media world. I'm glad you asked. So I often participate and hold different kind of titles. Like you kind of mentioned in the beginning, I'm the founder and executive director of Beyond the Built Environment. I'm an associate at IJ Associates. I'm also the president-elect of NOMA National, as well as their historian. I'm also the AIA New York Board of Director and the AIA National Strategic Planning Committee member, and I'm joining the Secretary Advisory Committee in the next year. So you basically have a lot of free time. That's the summary of what you just said, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Team no sleep. But I say all this to say is that I I participate in this collective responsibility, as I Mm -hmm. call it, as a way of kind of getting engaged and intertwined with the communities that I'm trying to serve and engage with. And so one of my favorite programs is Project Pipeline, which is a camp that goes through NOMA, which really tries to introduce 
architecture and design to small kids and really then support them through the entire pipeline of becoming a licensed professional and an abutting and a successful firm and career, right? But I often think about these kids and think, wow, you know, they're so excited. They're like, I'm going to be an architect. They're waving goodbye. And I'm like, well, what happens if they continue the research about becoming an architect? Mm. And so I Googled the words great architect and Google banner comes up with 50 names and faces. And if you look at them, they are from now contemporary, currently practicing architects all the way down to Raphael and Michelangelo. Like it's a long breath of time. And within there, there is not a single African-American architect within there. There's only one woman, Zaha Hadid. And I think that algorithm is starting to shift a bit. And it, depending on what time or where you, you search, you might get a genie gang if you're lucky. But I went mm -hmm. to Google's headquarters in New York and had a meeting to ask, why is this the result of this search? And they said, Pascal, there's just not enough content out there that list you all is great. And that's why I created the library, the Great Diverse Designers Library. Everybody's name starts with the great as a mm -hmm. way of challenging the algorithm to ensure that I'm creating and producing content that makes us and elevates us in that capacity. Mm -hmm. And that is also why I'm challenging my, with my say with media, that they also call us great in the language because you wouldn't be interviewing us. You wouldn't be featuring us if we didn't do something great. Right. And so mm -hmm. that's kind of part of the logic and the reasoning behind that text of that kind of vernacular, because I want when people research the profession that we are part of the, the catalyst and the catalog of those who are doing great things and impacting the world to, again, reinforce that we have the capacity mm -hmm. to do great things. And not just for people who look like us to get that message, but also for those who don't to also say, say when they see us in a room in a space, they recognize that we are also bringing greatness to the conversation and to the built environment as well. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're describing is absolutely amazing. And it makes you realize is that when you think of the, that structure, that history of great architecture, it is so, it's so Eurocentric. That's why Raphael, Michelangelo, Leonardo, and the rest of the Ninja Turtles <laughs> shows up as the, the greats in the beginning. But like, why don't we talk about uh, Hamiyunu, who is the architect of the Great Pyramid of Giza, who was African? Or how about Ahmad Lahuri, who is the architect of the Mughal jewel that's the Taj Mahal in India? Why do we talk about them? Because we need to be the ones writing those books. We need to be the ones teaching the class. We need to be the ones documenting. And if we assume somebody else is going to document the information for mm -hmm. us, we're going to be completely erased out of history as we've been done in the past. And so that is why it's about not just elevating yourself, but also creating this kind of ownership and authority to say, I can write and should write and have the expertise to write about this content and about this information that we are the experts in. And the way we can start today is by calling each other the great. So for our listeners who may just be tuning in, so I'm with the great Pascal Sablons. <laughs> I love it. I do it all the time now. <laughs> you're the best. You're the best. Okay. So amongst the many great projects that the great Pascal Sablon has worked on, we're going to focus on the Cleveland Foundation uh, headquarters. So as its name implies, it's in Cleveland. So tell us about the particular neighborhood that it's in and the site and what uh, challenges or opportunities that that presented? 
Yeah, the uh, Cleveland Foundation headquarters is a really important project for me to my soul, but also just manifestation of the advocacy and the encouragement that I've been asking the profession to do and seeing it come to fruition through this project. It's actually located on East 66th and Euclid Avenue in Midtown in Cleveland, Ohio. And it's really in the gateway of reaching to the Gulf community, which is a predominantly African-American community. And it's a really powerful and important concept because the project itself is a headquarters for an organization that really does support communities, but then also positioned in a way where it creates a bridge um, that we pull the community in and have spaces for them to engage within that. And that project also has been catalytic to create street beautifications as well as safety kind of protocols for kind of crossing the main streets and actually making sure that the experience as a pedestrian is equally as exciting and as enhancing as it is for vehicular traffics that are kind of driving through and around. And how we can use the design of the project and the landscaping and the open spaces as a resource that kneels and that offers itself to the community as well, it's really important and powerful. And all of that was done not through assumptions, but actually through direct engagement where we had record number of community engagement meetings where we're able to ask the community stakeholders leadership, not just like what they would want to see in the Mm -hmm. project, But what were their aspirations for their lives? What were their fears about their project or their community in their neighborhood? And then allowed architecture to be the response to that. And I made it a point to say, if you're ever going to get a community member to be vulnerable, to not just speak about their joys, but then their fears, then we have a responsibility to take that information and do something with it. Right. We cannot just say, oh, I like that answer. So I'm going to use it. And like, oh, I don't like that. Answer, so I'm disregard. Nothing can be disregarded because that was how we as a profession can build trust with the community. And so I really am excited about the Cleveland Foundation headquarters that is absolutely in construction on East 66th and mm-hmm. uh, Euclid Avenue in Midtown. So the Cleveland mm-hmm. Foundation, that's the, the client on this project. Uh, tell us more about their mission and what they hope to accomplish with their work. So Cleveland Foundation was critical and important for me because they actually came to our office and said, we are a mission-based organization, and Mm -hmm. it's important to us that we hire an architect that also understands advocacy. So they were one of the first clients that actually provided a sense of value to advocacy work through the lens of being an architect. Then the way they kind of stepped forward is that they knew how much square footage and program that they needed to function as a headquarters and then wanted to and successfully expanded that number of square footage in a way where almost, almost half the square footage of the whole project is actually dedicated to community spaces. And so it was just not about what were the programs that they needed, but what was the programs that the community needed and again, informed by that. And so they are you know, excited to join the residents and the non-profit partners and community leaders to create a larger movement of equitable growth and place keeping. So it's not about, you know, gentrification and eradicating culture, but actually keeping that place, keeping that culture embedded and create this kind of crossroads or kind of connection and braiding between Midtown and the kind of bustling kind of businesses that are happening on Euclid with the Huff neighborhoods and those who are there. And so they really, as an organization, has been incredibly successful in funding and supporting different community groups throughout Ohio and Mm -hmm. in Cleveland specifically, and helping launch really important community efforts. And so between that and then that also being manifested in their building, I thought it was absolutely powerful. And they really pushed for this idea and what we kind of co-collaborated on 
through the design kind of vision of Naveed Makami is this mm-hmm. porous ground floor that really, you know, you're not walking by, you know, solid walls or back of house services, but you're walking through community multi-purpose spaces, you know, community gathering spaces where if there's a meeting, they can come here, resource spaces, program spaces. The lobby is actually a resource center that you can access whether or not you have a meeting with the Cleveland Foundation. You are meant to come in and hang out and chill and it's been public, you know, furnished and in a way that allows for that. We have a cafe, a gallery where we'll be displaying local art and talent. It's like really trying to create this way. And then also a lot of the landscaping and green spaces and public spaces are also accessible, which is really powerful and important because sometimes you walk by architecture and you're not quite sure whether you're welcomed. As a Black person navigating spaces, I definitely read that coded language as I, I walk from community to neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And really being, you know, meaningful with the type of materials we're selecting, the the, the level of the wayfinding, right? And the kind of soft, gentle transitions between indoor and outdoor. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't feel like it's a gate or a fence, but it actually feels like something that's welcoming you if you choose to kind of engage in that capacity. It's really powerful. And then as another statement, it's a sustainable project. It's a lead gold project that really does, again, put the value of sustainability and being responsible through construction and through design as part of the project. And it's a timber structure. And I'm really proud of that. And it's helping with the construction, the ease of construction as well, but showcasing the natural components, right? Letting you feel the warmth, having that tactile component and feeling through the architecture is also another love language, if you will, of how the built environment is speaking to it. And so for me, this is a project that is designed justice because A, it's a structure that's designed in a way that's not just for the end user, but also for the community. B, it's positioned in a place to be catalytic to kind of make a bridge and a connection to a community that has definitely been overlooked and haven't been served in the past. C, it pushes sustainability in all aspects. D, it really blends the importance of indoor-outdoor experiences, that it's not just a matter of, you know, coloring some walls green, but actually living that truthfully. And how do you manifest those design ideals through the landscaping, which is another important method of the built environment. And then D, I think I forgot what letter I'm up to, E maybe. (laughs) There's just the kind of porosity of it all and really kind of that component and that it is a reflection of the conversations and the intimate discussions that we've had with the communities to get us there. And so that is why this project is a really important one. And I really hope you all get a chance to see it, visit it, and kind of learn about it some more. So a couple of things I want to dive into there. So number one, you had mentioned the process of community engagement as you were developing the design. What does a successful process of community engagement look like? Are there posters that you put up and how do people come? What does the meeting, what happens at the meeting? What do people get? How does that actually work? Well, for me, community engagement needs to start in a local component. So it's always Mm -hmm. about partnering up with local community stakeholders and leaders who know their community, right? Who can say, Mm -hmm. here's who we need in the room. Here is the issues that we've been tackling all along and are kind of part of the process. It's also a diversity of ways of engagement. There's virtual engagement. There's in-person engagement. There's ones that are happening on the weekday. There's ones that are happening on the weekends. It's finding ways of kind of reaching people where they can and is the most convenient for them. Then I would say it's also about the method of getting information and being accountable to that information. How are we collecting the info from the community when they come and they visit and they participate? And then it's also about understanding 
How are we not only just accountable to them, but then also how do we show value, right? In some instances, depending on the event or the component, people were kind of in other kind of engagement stuff that I've done in different projects is that Mm -hmm. they've been paid to participate, to be there. Oh, just so people know, is this $5, $50, $5,000? How much people paid? Well, like there's a firm called Concordia out in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And what they call that position is a community fellow, if I remember okay. correctly. And in that regard, what they do is that they're able to hire a person of the community who comes to all their critical design meetings. So that Got is it. a consistent voice, a person who's part of it. And that fee of that person's salary is put into their design proposal fees. And so uh, if a I client see. So it's not says, just a one-off. It's like no, a, it, it can yeah. be. Like I've also done community engagement in another city where I was trying to get more students to talk about what they wanted to see in schools. And so for that, we had a small stipend of like, you come, you get $50 and, you know, you participate. Da, da, da. So I, I think it can range. But I think what was important is to say when a community member comes and they're telling you all this critical information that you literally cannot find anywhere else, it's important to compensate. And I don't mean mm-hmm. just cold pizza and some soda. I mean, <laughs> like, right, either give them a real task and kind of yes. say you come in and we pay you for that. And that could be a salaried position. And or it's about incentivizing and kind of creating that, too, because honestly, they're providing you jewels and a wealth of knowledge. And when you have a community supporting your project, that mm-hmm. really does make a huge difference in terms of the process and how it goes through. But then also mm-hmm. how the project then flourishes once it's done that Mm -hmm. I think is really important that we understand. And so therefore, I'm also challenging a lot of these institutions in the profession, the design profession, that don't just herald architecture or buildings that are billions and billions of dollars or is shiny and polished and pretty, Mm -hmm. but also who are emblematic of the values we've been talking about, right? Where it talks about the process, not just the end result. Um, And I think that's something that should always be part of the lens of how we review and uh, speak to what when a product is great or not. And I think that's really incredible, this idea that the process of community engagement is something that isn't a check the box. So I'm a city planning commissioner in Hoboken. And from the the projects that I've seen and, and come to understand, there are so many paths to engaging a community. And if you think in a way as if you were in the position of that person in the community, how would you want to be treated? How would you want to be addressed in the context of this project? And I think sometimes if if folks that are developing, designing, working a project can just take themselves out of that role and just put themselves in the other and imagine how would they want to be treated, then you could often end up with much better scenarios than completely contentious projects that get slowed or canceled or changed incredibly during the process. Yeah, and I think there's even examples like Maurice Cox and Steve Lewis when they were in Detroit and how they set it up for a development to happen that they had like mm-hmm. a zero displacement policy, right? And so developers had to figure out their performance in a way that included, encompassed the community that's there. And then they also created this requirement like to present to the community your pitch. And mm-hmm. so that also provided this ability for the community to speak about or speak to just the kind of opportunities that were coming in and it placed a sincere level of, of value on the community's voice because the developer was not just trying to convince the planning commissioners and whomever that they are the best product, but they were also having to convince the community to do so as well. And to mm-hmm. do that, they actually had to create projects and development that actually held their values in mind. And so it is one thing, and I, I agree about putting yourself in other people's shoes, but it's also just to recognize whose shoes you're messing with and just ask mm-hmm. them the questions. What do you need? How do you want us to engage you? What are the things that are critical for you? And really, again, being respectful of that conversation and content. 
So listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this great podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience and follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team at Michael Graves and Redist, and many of our spectacular guests, just like Pascal, on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, Seven Tips on How to Stand Out in Your Field, at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. 